This message by Randy Alcorn, titled Worshiping God as the Source of All Secondary Joys, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the fifth main session at our Worship God 2006 conference. Randy serves as Director of Eternal Perspective Ministries. I want to start by asking the question, what is the essence of heaven? Well, it's to be with God, it's to see His face, to never have anything between us and Him. Is that, is that a great idea? <laughs> never anything that will ever get in the way of our relationship with God. Uh, in the book Heaven, one of the many, many questions that I deal with is the idea, the question is, could there ever be another fall? Could we ever become separated from God again? I mean, will we still have free choice? And if so, would we perhaps choose sin? And, and uh, Scripture is very clear on this issue. Jesus said that uh, he's gonna, God's going to send his angels and he's going to take away everything that causes sin. Sin is going to be behind us. Sin, been there, done that. We will never be deceived again. We will see God as He truly is. We will be, we will have the very righteousness of Christ. We'll never sin again. But we'll, would that be great? Yeah. But we'll, we'll never lose the memory of the sin that we did in the sense that We will see the scars on the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. We will worship Him forever as our Redeemer. And the very acknowledgement of Him and worship of Him as our Redeemer, why did He have to become our Redeemer? Well, because of sin. But the details of sin, the oppression of sin, these will be things that we will remember were real, but no longer have a grip on us, the curse that has lost its grip on us, sin has lost its grip on us, and that's how it's going to be. To never have anything between us, to be unimpaired by sin and curse, to be fully and finally redeemed. We're going to talk about those re-words, and those re-words should be central to our theology, central to uh, our faith. Certainly they are in Scripture. So the question, where is heaven? Well, heaven is wherever the omnipresent God chooses to make his central dwelling place. Now, it's, it's an odd idea in a way, because when you say that God is everywhere present, and then you say that heaven is the place that God is present, well, how does that work? Is heaven everywhere? No, it's not, because heaven is a special place that God has chosen uh, to dwell And it is the place where His throne is. Now, He rules everywhere, but His throne is specifically located somewhere. Wherever He puts His throne is, by definition, heaven. Now, here's a surprise that a lot of people don't grasp. And it's why this concept of the new earth is a very paradigm-shifting concept. God is going to relocate heaven. Where heaven is right now, in another realm, it's described as being up, and Stephen the martyr sees Christ seated at the right hand of God, and and heaven is out there somewhere, whether it's in uh, a a universe adjacent to this one, or whether it's a, a far location in this universe, people debate, But the bottom line is it's not right here, right now. But remarkably, Scripture teaches that one day it will be right here, right now. Now, when I say here, you go, no, wait a minute, not here. Well, on earth. Yeah, but not this earth. Yes, this earth made new. Let me ask you a question. Will your body be in eternity? This body you have right now, will that be your body forever? Yes and no. No in the sense it won't be your body experiencing the curse 
and the ravages of uh, time and sin and mortality and all of that. But will it truly be your body made new with continuity between the old and the new? Absolutely yes. That is the doctrine of resurrection. You know what I've discovered, especially since uh, writing books on this subject of heaven, is that there are many Christians who would die for the doctrine of the resurrection, but they don't believe it. Because the doctrine of the resurrection means that we will not hover around as ghosts for eternity. The doctrine of the resurrection means that we will not live forever in an angelic realm for disembodied spirits, but we will live forever on what God calls the new earth. An earth that is redeemed because God was not content to simply redeem souls, spirits. He redeems bodies and He redeemed, He will redeem the earth itself. Now this is a clear teaching of Scripture, but it has not been clearly communicated in our evangelical churches, very honestly. Which is why the thought, I think, is so foreign to us. Well, here it is in Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And, and, and that word now could almost be translated like, Now at last. Now. What, what the universe has been waiting for. Now... The dwelling of God, the special place God dwells, which is by definition heaven. Now the dwelling of God on this new earth is with men, and He will live with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them. And be their God. Now, do you get the feeling that something's being emphasized here? With men, with them, with them, down here where they live on this new earth as resurrected beings who will worship and praise and serve God for all eternity. So the teaching of Scripture is that God will relocate heaven to the physical realm of the new earth which is described as a very physical place. Read Revelation 21-22. Read Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 65. It's very physical. It's very tangible. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. No longer will there be any curse. Sin's curse has lost its grip on me, and guess what? According to this passage, and and really that's the theme of Romans 8, sin's curse will lose its grip on the earth itself, on the universe. Sin will no longer have a grip. Sin will no longer be. A magnificent promise, but where does it say that the throne of God and of the Lamb will be located? In the city, the new Jerusalem, capital city of the new earth, capital planet of the new universe. And his servants will serve him. So, here's the truth. The eternal incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, this great name of Jesus, God with us. Now notice that the meaning of that is not us with God, it's God with us. That probably should tell us something. It's not about us ultimately going up to live with God, though that's what happens when we die now because of where the intermediate heaven, the temporary, the present heaven is located in another realm. So when we die, we do go up to be with the Lord. Wonderful thing, greater by far than living life here under sin and curse, certainly, Paul says, 
But then he says, don't forget the promise of the resurrection. Because those who are with the Lord right now await the resurrection and look forward to it. The eternal heaven is not us going up to dwell with God and angels in their place. But God coming down to dwell with us in our place. Now that is remarkable to say the least. God himself will dwell with them on the new earth. That's what we're told three times in Revelation 21.3. Every once in a while, some people say, well, I don't, you can't really believe that that heaven's out there. I mean, you can't really believe that heaven is going to be on earth. Well, the old expression, heaven on earth, of course, is misused, misapplied, misthought. But think of the teaching of Scripture. We prayed it together last night in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. Nobody's questioning whether God's will is done on in heaven. The battle is raging on earth. And God is going to actually take this place where the battle is raging and make it his central dwelling place. I, I did not come up with this concept. I never would have come up with this concept. And so sometimes when people say, well, where did you get this? And Well, it's just right there. I mean, if God, when he says three times, God will come down and dwell with his people on the new earth, and he will put his throne there, then that's pretty explicit. And when Scripture talks about the new earth, it's very Explicit. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city which is on the new earth. Now, this has tremendous implications as to how we view eternity, how we view eternal life, and it has tremendous implications for how we view our life right now. Because we have developed among evangelical Christians a theology of destruction and abandonment. The Bible teaches a theology of redemption and renewal. And you know what? When we believe that the universe is such that God will have to abandon it and destroy it. Now, by the, by the term destroy, I mean ultimately, completely irredeemably destroy. Will there be a destruction? Yes, Second Peter 3. The elements will melt with all of that. Yes, there is a destruction, just like there's a destruction of our bodies. So some follower of God died 2,000 years ago. What condi- Has his body been destroyed? Sure, it has undergone destruction. But will it remain destroyed? No. God will assemble the molecules, the atoms. Maybe he'll use the the DNA as the blueprint. Who knows? However God is going to pull this resurrection thing off, it's no problem. You know, when when you're God, you have some advantages. Omnipotence, omniscience, you know. And so, you know, omnipotence goes a long way. And so it's not a real problem. Memorable quotes from the conference. Yes, I heard Randy Alcorn say, omnipotence goes along. Okay, that would be a great book title. Omnipotence goes a long way. Yeah, and, and indeed it does. Um, but God is going to put it all together, and so he's also going to take the earth, which will be destroyed, and reassemble it. In fact, in Second Peter 3, it says that the old earth was destroyed by the flood. Well, does it mean it no longer existed? No, God took what was destroyed and refashioned it. Removed the waters from it. Same thing, God will take an even more cataclysmic destruction with fire that's coming, but He will restore that. It will be a purifying fire and He will remake the earth from the same substance as He will remake our bodies from the same substance. There is continuity. And that's where we say instead of destruction and abandonment, the ultimate future has to do with redemption and renewal. And that 
should cause us to worship our God for His greatness. Because it's a lot more magnificent to redeem and renew than to abandon and destroy. Now, if God wanted to abandon and destroy, I would not question it for a moment. Who am I to talk back to God, as Paul says in Romans? I mean, we, who are we? But that isn't what he says will happen. Redemption and renewal. And these are, uh, the word redemption is used a lot. But I don't think we really grasp what Scripture is teaching. Ephesians 1.10 says, God's will which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, the, the ultimate goal of all creation, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. The ultimate is not that heaven and earth would be separated from each other and earth abandoned, but that all things, and in the original Greek, all things means all things, which is why it is translated by Greek scholars, all things. He, all things together under one head, even Christ. And you ask yourself, what is not included in all things? The omnipresent God may dwell centrally wherever He wishes, wherever He chooses to put His throne is heaven as we've said, and he has revealed that he will dwell with his risen people on the new earth and he'll put his kingdom throne on the new earth and that will be heaven. That is the teaching of Scripture. Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology, which uh, I've heard several people recommend in a couple of the different seminars yesterday, and I certainly highly recommend it, says Christians often talk about living with God in heaven forever. But in fact, the biblical teaching is richer than that. Well, you say, richer than that? How do you get richer than that? Well, it tells us that there will be new heavens and a new earth. You know, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So new heavens isn't just new dwelling place of God. It, it Depending on how you interpret it, it could include that. But the celestial heavens, you know, the third, uh, there's the third heaven, uh, but there's also the second heaven, the celestial heavens, and the first heaven, the atmosphere of the earth. There will be new heavens, a new Andromeda galaxy, new uh, black holes and, and white dwarfs and neutron stars, new quasars, new galaxies, new nebulae, new all of these things, presumably, that were part of the old universe that will be made new, an entirely renewed creation. And we will live with God there. There will also be a new kind of unification of heaven and earth. And Ephesians 1.10 makes that, that clear. So you, I've just charted it this way. And this is quite different than a lot of the eschatological charts that tend to be kind of speculative. But life on earth as we now live it. Notice that, okay, you're conceived, uh, you are born, you reach a certain point and your life may physically, mentally, you may hit a point of decline. And then you, and some of you are thinking, yeah, I hit that <laughs> decades ago. Yeah, but, and then you, then we die. But the story doesn't end at our death. When we die, we go to be with the Lord in what theologians call the intermediate heaven. Now, that doesn't, intermediate doesn't mean like halfway between heaven and hell or something like that. But it means just the place we live between our death and our resurrection. Does that make sense? So that, that's the, the present heaven, the intermediate heaven. But then there is going to be this huge event, the resurrection. And Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. So we can learn what we're going to be like. We'll be like Him. We'll see Him as He is. Our bodies will be like His in the resurrection. He ate. He drank. He walked around. He talked with people. Physical, tangible. He says, touch me. Handle me. I am not a ghost. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as I have. How explicit could He be? I mean, I think sometimes God says things in His Word, and, I, and I'm as dense as anybody. Uh, I'll read something for years, and all of a sudden I'll go, oh my word, 
Is that what it's really saying? Why didn't I figure that out a long time ago? Jesus is saying that we will eat and drink in his kingdom, and he says it repeatedly. I'm going to sit down with you and Abraham and Isaac. They'll come from the east and the west. We'll feast in the kingdom. Isaiah 25 says, the Lord God himself will prepare a feast for his people. Now, how good a feast is that going to be? God himself is going to prepare a feast for his people. And is it a literal feast? Absolutely. Everything about it. It is literal. And so when we think of this figurative idea of, oh, well, eating and drinking, we won't really eat and drink. Jesus says, I won't eat and drink of this again until I do it with you in the kingdom. Of this, this, bread, wine, real stuff that we eat and he ate in his resurrection body. So, at the point of resurrection, regardless of what your eschatology is, in terms of whether you're premillennial, whether you're amillennial, whether you're postmillennial, let's set aside all millennial issues, that's real easy to do, for the moment, and just say, you know what? Regardless of what you believe about the millennium, the promise of Scripture that is emphatic, that we can all agree on, is that we will live forever on a new earth. There will be a new earth. So we don't even have to, there's, we don't have to debate about the eternal destination. And so that's why I don't even include it. Resurrection, life on new earth. If you want to put a little thing in there for a thousand years, great. If you believe that that's figurative, that the, that God's people are reigning, uh, with Christ right now, seated in the heavenlies, and that's what that means. If you, whatever. But the point is, we will live forever. Life on the new earth as resurrected beings. Anthony Hokema, whose writings I, I, I really recommend. You don't have to agree with him in every point, certainly, but he has tremendous insights. His, his uh, book, The Bible in the Future, and, and I quote, I quote from a lot of theologians with Dutch names. Uh, in the heaven book. And uh, they're reformed, most of them, and uh, they're uh, tremendous uh, insights. And I don't apologize for all that. I mean, one of the things that was interesting, and the publisher first said, you know, if you, you, quit, you include all of these quotes from theologians in here. And you know what? People just aren't going to read it. And some people said, you know, you, you just quote so much from the Bible if you just put references in, yeah, right, and how many of us actually look up the references as, you know, as we're going? I mean, so we, we could cut a lot of corners. Well, people aren't going to respond to it. Well, uh, the book sold about 300,000 copies now in hardback in 18 months. And I think it shows that people are actually hungry for good theology, what the Bible actually says. And we really don't have to just give everybody what we think they want. When we give everybody what we think they want, they learn to want less than they should. And I think that's been happening. And, and, uh, and I'm not, you know, this is not unique in the sense that, uh, the books that I really love to read are the books just like that I see in the bookstore here. And I'm not talking about mine. I'm talking about all those other ones. And it's, and it's a privilege to be uh, in company with that. But Hogama says, God will make the new earth his dwelling place. Heaven and earth will then no longer be separated as they are now, but they will be one. To leave the new earth out of consideration when we think of the final state of believers is to greatly impoverish biblical teaching about the life to come. I should say so. It is to impoverish it. But when was the last time most evangelical Christians in America, in the world, really, in the Western world in particular, have heard a message on the new earth? I mean, we talk more about the tribulation and the millennium and by far than the new earth. When I, when I was in Bible college and seminary, we barely talked at all about the new earth. 
I mean, by the time we got to Revelation 21 and 22, we had spent so much time talking about pros and cons of a mid-trib rapture that, you know, it's just like we didn't get, you know, if you're going to study through a book and you only have so many weeks to do it in a semester, you know, if, if you, the last couple of chapters of the Bible get neglected in Bible survey, if the, if the teacher, if the professor ever gets behind, you don't make it to Revelation 21 and 22, which are about new heavens, new earth. Now, that's not the only place that the new earth is spoken of, but it's certainly climactic. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. Scripture says this, and this is where I want to make a connection to heaven and the lives that we live now and how heaven will be the fulfillment of those lives and should encourage us to direct our lives that way. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? To be with God. Nothing is greater than to be with God, and that's what we yearn for. We think we're yearning for a lot of other things sometimes, when in fact what we're yearning for is to be with God. David says in Psalm 63:1, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. Isn't that interesting? The whole person. Not just the soul, not just the spirit. The platonic idea is that one day we'll be delivered from these lousy bodies and we'll forever float around in our spirits in eternity. And the spirit is good and the body is bad. And so that will be the nature of heaven. That will be what we like. That, that is completely foreign to Scripture. Scripture completely contradicts that, both the, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament. Paul says, you know, hey, if, if there's no resurrection, we're of all men most to be pitied. It would be pitiful to not have a body for eternity because God came up with the idea of the body. God came up with the idea of us ruling the earth. Satan didn't come up with those ideas. It's God who did. So we long for God. We thirst for God with our whole being in a dry and weary land where there is no water because this earth currently is under the curse. And we long to be delivered from the curse. No longer will there be any curse. They will see His face is the promise of Scripture. It's what the ancient theologians called the beatific vision. And I love that term because the beatific vision doesn't mean... A vision of God. Well, it is a vision of God. That's, that's what it's talking about. But the actual meaning of the word beatific is it is a happy-making sight. So the vision is the sight, and beatific is happy-making. And what will make us happy? To see God. We will find joy forever in Him. And so David says in Psalm 27, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. To dwell with God forever. To gaze upon His beauty. To seek Him in His temple. And will we seek, will we learn Will we learn in the ages to come? I'm glad you asked that question. The, the answer is Ephesians 2.7. God says, in the coming ages, God will be revealing to us the wonders of His grace. We will learn. Do you think... I mean, sometimes I hear people say, well, well, everything will be okay. And I addressed this in the Heaven Book and, and many other fallacies. I mean, it's amazing how the wrong thinking that we have. You hear people say, well, I don't understand it now, but of course I'll understand it when I die because when we're with the Lord, we'll know everything. Uh, no, because see, only God knows everything. We will be perfected, finite people, creatures. Perfected in the sense, no sin, no impairment, but not that we will know everything there is to know, nor that we will know everything that we will ever know, because God has made us as finite beings to learn, to grow. We will know more of God's wisdom and grace and wonders revealed in the new creation, revealed in history that we were blind to, 
we will know far more in the ages to come than we know not only now, but that we'll know the moment we die. We'll be with the Lord, but there will be process. We will learn. We will grow. And it's a magnificent thing. Worship on this earth is a foretaste of and preparation for life on the new earth. And you know what? Sometimes we miss this because of our false theology. Because we think disembodied state, spirits uh, staring into, um, as, as Aquinas said, uh, the idea of just spirits passively staring at God, the all-wise spirit, and just beholding Him. Great idea, beholding Him. Scripture says that. We will see Him. But the idea of passive is contradicted by Scripture that says His servants will serve Him. The word serve is not passive. In any sense, servants have things to do, places to go, people to see. We will have dominion over the earth with responsibilities. But but we lose that if we don't think we'll be on an earth and we don't think that we'll have bodies. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you, Asaph says in, in Psalm 73. Now, this raises an interesting question. Earth has nothing I desire beside you. Well, you either have to conclude that you truly have no desires in your life except for God, or you need to conclude that all the desires that you have in your life, a multitude of them, all that are pure and holy and honorable to God, not the sinful desires, there are those, but they're not all those. You know, we do have legitimate, God-given desires. Is the desire to have food to eat and, and, and water to drink, is, is that desire from Satan? Now, God is the one who put those desires in us. But what we need to understand is this. God is the fountainhead. God is the source of all the lesser streams of desire. When I desire food, friendship, work, play, music, drama, or art, I am desiring God. Because God has made me to desire Him. I am created in His image. He has made me a creative being as He is a creative being. Now, there's a huge gap, an almost infinite gap, between us and God, and yet... We, of all His creation, not angels, not animals, are said to have been made in His image. And so God has put these desires in us, but we don't have to choose between them and desiring God. We should be desiring God in our desire of them. Does that make sense? I'm going to develop this a little bit more. For instance, there's a lot of people saying, well, you know, the only person we should desire is God. And they'll base it on passages like the one I just quoted. But what does Philippians 1 say? It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, Paul says to the Philippians, finding joy in them, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending the, the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So, should you come away from this conference feeling guilty because you enjoyed some new relationships you developed? Should you feel guilty because, you know what, I, I, I really enjoyed being there with those people, but I shouldn't enjoy those people. I should only enjoy God. Now, to some of us, that's just an obviously non sequitur. It does not work that way. But you, some of you will not be amazed because you've heard the same thing. It It is amazing to me how many people are developing a super spiritual mentality. They think it's super spiritual. It's like, like in some ways, you could use a term like Francis Schaeffer used in the 70s when he talked about the new super spirituality, where it's this thing of, no, I had had a a speaker uh, who uh, was at a conference and we were on a panel together. And somebody said something about uh, a person who was looking forward to heaven. And he says, we should, and then he he just stopped. We should not look forward to heaven. We should only look forward to God. 
It just sounded so spiritual. The problem is, you know, Hebrews 11, you've got Abraham longing for a better country. Longing, the people of God throughout the ages, longing for a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. There is no conflict between longing for heaven and longing for God if we long for heaven rightly as the dwelling place of God. And there's no problem. I've had people say, I, 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 I hate it when we talk about how when we go home to, to heaven, we'll meet our loved ones or we'll get to sit down and have dinner with Charles Spurgeon or, or you know, Jonathan Edwards or uh, the uh, Apostle Paul or whoever. Because that isn't what we should want. We should only want to be with Jesus. Well, you know what? Jesus wants us to want to be with those people. He said, you're going to sit at a table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob... They're going to be there. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that we should take encouragement from the fact that we will all together be with the Lord. We're going, there is going to be a reunion in the presence of God. So don't fall into this spiritual sounding thing of, well, don't desire heaven. Don't desire to be with other people. Only desire to be with Christ. Well, Christ is the primary who grants to us the secondary in order that in our pleasure taken in the secondary we may worship and glorify the primary. And that's what Scripture says. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All of it for the glory of God. So we should be eating and drinking to God's glory. Those are fairly mundane things. But we should do them to God's glory. Whatever you do, Colossians 3 says, work at it with all your heart. This is your work, your vocation, even even speaking to slaves, the duties that they had. Mundane, to say the least, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving... As you serve others. So don't say to yourself, well, I'm not going to serve people because it's not about people. It's about the Lord. Well, yes, it's about the Lord who has commanded you to serve people. It is about the Lord who says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And flowing out from that, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus could have just said... There's only one commandment. Don't pay attention to the other ones. The one commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart. But then he says a second that is like it. Inseparable ultimately from it that we would love other people. The original Great Commission was this. And we think of the Great Commission, we think of Matthew 28 and bringing the gospel to all people. And and that's great. It is a wonderful thing. Well-named Great Commission. But the original Great Commission, before there was any sin, was Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And guess what? Not once in Scripture are we ever told that God abandoned His original purpose, His original commission. Here it is. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Daniel 2 says, In the time of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all those other earthly kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself, a new earthly kingdom is going to endure forever. Daniel 7 says, The Son of Man was given authority, glory, sovereign power, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. Familiar language to what we see in uh, Revelation 5 and, and 7 about people of every tribe, nation, and language. We alluded to it in the service last night. Wasn't that great with people reading Scripture in the different languages? I mean, what a, what a tremendous thing. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Never be destroyed. 
But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom. The kingdom that replaces and supersedes all kingdom. A kingdom of God, yes, on earth, on the new earth. And they will possess it forever. Then it says, yes, forever and ever. Forever is more than a thousand years. And if there is a a literal thousand year kingdom on the earth, great. On the old earth, great if there is. But it will be superseded by an eternal kingdom that goes on forever. So that's why I say set aside that debate. I mean, fine. You have the debate. That's fine. But just just realize that the new earth, the eternity, God's kingdom is forever and ever. That's what we should focus on. And that we ought to agree on. If we don't agree on that, we're in trouble. Well, arguably we are in trouble in any number of areas, but God is good. This horn, the human king, was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. The time came, and this is, of course, speaking in the future, when they possessed the kingdom. God's people will possess the kingdom, will rule the kingdom. I'll skip over this one that that essentially are saying numbers of verses that are saying the same thing, that we're going to rule over God's kingdom. Now, Jesus said in Luke 22, I confer on you a kingdom. You will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to rule a kingdom. Well, God in the beginning created heavens and the earth. And then we're told, behold, Isaiah 65, God says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. As the new heavens, the new earth will endure before me, so will your name and descendants endure, Isaiah 66 says. And 2 Peter 3 says, in keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, where there will be no sin. The home of righteousness. Where will God's righteousness dwell in that new material universe that He's going to resurrect from the old because of His redemptive work. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Romans 8 is such a powerful passage. I'm just going to read this section to you. Just think of what it's saying. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation. The idea in the original is like it's, it's used in, a, in several places of like craning its neck. For the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, that's curse, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought to the glorious freedom of the children of God. Do you notice how broad this is speaking? It's not just God redeeming our spirits. And it's not just God redeeming our spirits and bodies. It even goes beyond that. It's God redeeming the earth itself. We know that the whole creation, the whole creation, more than the earth itself, the entire material universe that fell on the coattails of our sin, we who were its managers, its rulers, and as we fell, we took it down with us. And this passage promises us As we rise by the power of God in the resurrection, the same creation that fell on our coattails shall rise on our coattails. That God will accomplish for eternity His original declaration that we should rule the earth, the material universe, to the glory of God that angels might look on with wonder as we, beings created in His image, show, manifest what God the Creator is really like through the purity of our hearts, the wonder of... uh, We, the secondary, who reflect the primary that all the universe should see in us. The glory of God. God never gave up that plan. Not only so, but we are... So, so moving back. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who has the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. 
Boy, that would be... You know, there's a lot of different church mottos around that are based on different passages of Scripture. That's, that's a pretty good one. You, the word groan normally isn't put up as a motto in the front of churches, but we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. That's pretty cool. As we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Because that is the key right there. The redemption of our bodies, because in our resurrection, Christ will raise the fallen earth itself. And yes, we know that there are those who will spend eternity without Christ. And so in that sense, you could say a God's redemption is limited that does not include them. There are different ways you can look at that and think of that different ways. But I'm certainly not talking about universalism. Not that everybody's saved. Clearly not everyone is saved. We could wish otherwise, but that, that is not the case. Uh, but in terms of God's material universe, and does this have implications of, about animals? Actually, I think it does. And, uh, there, and, and I'm not talking about the, the, uh, the kind of the, the, the emotional feeling of uh, because I want to be with my dog champ in eternity, that therefore I will be. But if you actually look at this passage... And you say, well, what is the fallen creation that longs and groans in suffering besides us that is going to be redeemed along with us? Well, you know, do animals suffer? Higher animals? Certainly they do. And it sounds like a promise that they will be relieved of their suffering to enjoy on our coattails the wonders of a new creation where they too will experience all God intended for them, which did not include death. That was not the design of God. It was the consequence of our sin. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, Christ's kingdom, will never end. Revelation 21 says, The nations will walk by the Lamb's light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendors into the city. I think that splendor is the cultural products, the art, the music, the, uh, the, the building, the crafts, uh, all of these that will be brought into the city. Why? Because that's where the throne is and brought before the Lord as tribute to Him. We made these things with our hands, we who are your image bearers, that you might be honored and glorified through the works of our hands. On no day will its gates ever be shut. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And and, and there are some people who, who have read the heaven book who said, you really believe there'll be nations? I mean, on the new, and you go, well, yes, because I believe the Bible. That is what this passage says. It is the new earth. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into the city and the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life. It's been a while since we saw the tree of life. Remember the tree of life? The connection between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 is stunning. It is absolutely stunning. I've got a chart in the, in the book that lays out the, the parallels between them. Those thoughts, the general thought is certainly not original with me, but it is just, it, it is amazing how God takes what He laid out for His design of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and then it's lost in chapter 3, and then in Revelation 20, Christ returns, His kingdom is set up, Revelation 21 and 22 is the new earth, and it goes back to Eden. It goes back to the tree of life. It goes back to his servants will reign with him, will forever. And you go, yes, reign, have dominion over, just as we were designed to do. Now without sin, curse comes in Genesis 3. Curse is lifted in Revelation 22. It just, it goes on and on. It's it's amazing. Uh, I'm a writer, and I would not want people to read the beginning of my book without reading the end. It happens sometimes, but I think it's particularly sad when you realize that in writing, you're supposed to, by design, if, if you're writing a story, or even if you're writing non, uh, nonfiction, you're to build into the beginning of the book the promise that helps you anticipate what's going to happen at the end so that now we feel resolution. 
A lot of people treat the Bible as if there's no resolution. The only resolution is that we would dwell with God in a place made for angels off there as disembodied spirits. But that's not resolution because that's not how God made the world. The true resolution is exactly what's in Scripture. As God made the world to be ruled by human beings with bodies, to have human culture, art, science, and technology, and all of these things that we develop to the glory of God, to rule the earth. No longer will there be any curse. God's servants will serve Him. They will see His face and they will reign forever and ever. And when Scripture talks about God putting us over five cities or ten cities and, and, and God will not overlook so much as a cup of cold water given to one of His little ones in His name, people, what we do today, the smallest things we do in service for our Lord and in service of needy people, the smallest kindnesses and courtesies, at the airports, in the hotels, in the restaurants, which includes tipping generously because we are creatures of grace and recipients of grace and we extend that grace to others. All of that that we do is to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ that He might be evident in us. And for all eternity we will experience the rewards and the results of acts of obedience done for Him. Not to win our way to heaven. (laughs) We could never do that. There is a four-letter word for what every one of us deserves. It's hell. That's what we deserve for all eternity. And if you realize, by the way, that's what you deserve, it puts in perspective a bad day. (laughs) I'm having a bad day. Oh, man. But if you ever think entitlement, like, oh, you know what I want? I'm tired of waiting in line here. I'm tired of uh, people confiscating my liquids at the airport. I'm, you know, (laughs) because, hey, I should be able to go through because I'm clearly not a terrorist, right? Who do we think we are? And furthermore, if we're saying, I want what I deserve, never, ever, ever pray that prayer, never even think about praying that prayer, and if you are going to pray that prayer, warn the rest of us in advance that we may move away. (laughs) So that when the meteorite hits, that we are at least standing at a safe distance. We live now in a fallen culture. Okay, i got five minutes left, so I'm going to wrap this up. We live now in a fallen culture. We will live in a redeemed culture that will accurately reflect God's glory. Earth will not end as a failed experiment. We don't end as a failed experiment. Well, I tried that thing with people with bodies, but that worked miserably. Never going to give them bodies again. Whoa, boy. That messed up everything. No, resurrection. A glorified success. Some great uh, quotes from Dutch theologians that were skipping here and C.S. Lewis as well. (laughs) The spiritual corrective to idolatry, seek the giver, not the gift. I think there's a better way to word that. See the giver in the gift. Because you you get into problems. Seek the giver, not the gift. Yeah, you get into problems, for instance, with, I think, did did Bob allude to it um, earlier or maybe in his seminar yesterday, but the last verse of 1 Corinthians 12 tells us to desire, or depending on the translation, to seek the greater gift. We're told to seek any number of things besides God, but we are never to seek them instead of God, but as from the hand of God. Value the giver above the gift, but don't devalue the gift. Treasure it as an expression of the giver, as a reflection of the giver, as a signpost pointing to the giver. Our ability to worship God directly when we see Him should be cultivated now by becoming more God-conscious of what's around us. And I'm just going to skip through uh, some things here. Well, let me say this. The challenge to pastors and worship leaders... Narrow worship to its one true object, which is God. But also, may we broaden worship 
to see God far more in His creations and sub-creations. Now, what do I mean by sub-creations? Well, uh, it was actually J.R.R. Tolkien used uh, that term to speak of human beings made in God's image as sub-creators. We are not creators with a capital C. God forbid that we should ever think that we are. We're not. But we are creators with a lowercase c. He made us in our image to be creators. What that means is that I should be able to glorify God as I look. I, I live outside of Portland, Oregon, and the skyline of Portland is beautiful at night, as it is, you know, in many cities. And should I be able to worship God for the skyline of Portland? Well, now, some people would think, no, because it's just corrupt, sinful man that made the skyline. They're building the Tower of Babel, for crying out loud. Okay. Who gave us the desire to build? By the way, in the Incarnation, have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus became a carpenter? A carpenter makes things and repairs things. What a picture. He's the Creator who's made the entire universe, and now it's gone bad. And what does He do? Torch it! Pour gasoline on it, torch it, and that's the end of it? No. I mean, maybe it'll seem like that because there will be this great destruction, but reshapes it, remakes it, rebuilds it, fixes it, repairs it. And that's exactly what he does. So we should be able to glorify God with what we see in creation. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He is the primary joy, the source, and then there are the secondary joys what this verse calls uh, all things. He will graciously give us all things. Jonathan Edwards, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature and the enjoyment of Him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, earthly friends are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are the streams. God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. God is the ocean. And he also said, the redeemed will indeed enjoy other things, but that which they shall enjoy in the angels or each other or in, and in every, anything else whatsoever that will yield them delight and happiness will be what will be seen of God in them. Let me um, read just a, a final verse from Second uh, Peter chapter 3 in the same context where we are told that uh, since everything will be destroyed in this way, not a permanent destruction, but a, but a radical destruction, what kind of people ought you to be? That's verse 11 of Second Peter 3. You ought to live holy and godly lives. This is the current application of knowing our destiny. Some people say, well, you only go around once on earth, so grab for all the gusto and all this coming. Actually, you go around twice on earth if you're a believer. And the second one's going to last forever. The new earth. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Wow. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with Him because people, it does matter how we live now. It does matter that we reflect the love and purity and generosity and, and sacrifice, joyful, glad sacrifice of Jesus Christ as we encounter people in our lives, in our families, in our churches. It does matter. And by leading our people in worship, 
We are giving them a foretaste of heaven. We are introducing them into a deeper relationship with the God who, when you see Him as He is, as we saw last night in Isaiah 6 in that reading, as the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God says to us, You should be holy, for I, the Lord God, am holy. There's a lot of books on purity. I've written one myself. But the ultimate draw toward purity is the nature of the God that we love, the God that we serve, the God that Tozier and so many others spoke about, the handout that I, that I gave you from the knowledge of the Holy. If we see Him as He is, which is what should happen in worship, we should get that foretaste, that foretaste of seeing God, the beatific vision, the happy-making sight, it should transform every aspect of our lives and motivate us to obey Him and to draw upon the strength of His Holy Spirit to honor and praise Him. Let's uh, bow our heads and uh, and pray together. And uh, I want to... uh, read a poem written by my friend Calvin Miller. Calvin writes this, I once scorned every fearful thought of death when it was but the end of pulse and breath. But now my eyes have seen that past the pain there is a world that's waiting to be claimed. Earthmaker, holy, let me now depart for living such a temporary art and dying is but getting dressed for God. Our graves are merely doorways cut in sod. Father, thank you for this truth which is based upon your word, the promise of resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that you never gave up on this world that you made even more than you have ever given up upon us, the people that you have made. Thank you that you promise that we will enjoy for eternity your company, the company of the redeemed. I think of my mom and dad and Nancy's mom and dad and my friend Greg who died when we were in high school and Jerry, my best friend from childhood, died 15 years ago and every one of us here can think of people that we do long to see again. Thank you, Lord, that that's a right thing. Above all, we should long to see you. But in longing to see them, we should long to see you, for you are the source of all great gifts and all small gifts. Lord, thank you for the air that we breathe. Thank you for the food that we enjoy. Thank you for the health that we enjoy. Even those who are not healthy have uh, health benefits. Uh, that are from your hand um, that should we should never presume upon. But thank you, Lord, that we are not past our peaks. Thank you that we shall never be past our peaks. Thank you for the promise of Romans 8 and other passages that the best is yet to be. By far, the best is yet to come. And in the ages to come, right when we could be tempted one day because it is so glorious to think it just doesn't get any better than this. Thank you, Lord, that it will. It will get better than this in the ages to come as we learn more of your grace, as we serve you, perhaps throughout the far reaches of the new universe, but certainly on the new earth. Lord, may we find in you at that time a glory and grace that in this time here and now we have caught a taste of that we have caught a vision for thank you that you who will we will worship for eternity you who will sit on the throne of the new Jerusalem and the new earth are the very one who says says to us I am with you always even here even now In a world where we groan, in a world where there is suffering, thank you, Lord, that one day you will wipe away the tears from every eye and we will see you as you are 
and we will glorify you and honor you. Thank you for this conference. Thank you for the leadership of this conference. Thank you that we have been brought before your throne. May we leave with a sense of your ongoing presence with us and may we go back to our churches and families and infuse into them the life of Jesus Christ that we have seen and experienced. Thank you for the privilege of beholding you and worshiping you. We look forward to doing that together for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Randy Alcorn, which was given at our Worship God 2006 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planning and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.